Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, before we begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. I'd also like to utilize this opportunity to give a huge shout out and thank you to all the awesome people who have supported me over at patreon.com slash MTG in Quarantine. So a huge thank you to Mr. Big Bents, Anomaly, Draco Lucian, Neo Royal, Nick S, Infamous Fridge, Frugal Brutal, and Jen of the Filthy MTG Casuals for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash Quarantine for more information. Today's episode of the podcast is another in the uh, ever-increasing amount of CDH content that I've really been getting into as I've been getting into the CDH side of things over the last couple of months myself. And I have a really awesome episode with a really awesome guest. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Ryan from Playing With Power. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on. So before we get to the rest of today's episode, how about you give us the Playing With Power pitch in case people are interested in seeing playing cards at the highest power levels. Yeah, so my name is Ryan, and like I said, we, uh, me and my teammates host the YouTube channel Playing With Power MTG. We are a CDH gameplay YouTube t- channel. We have cut and edited gameplay, but we also have a variety of other pieces of content as well. You can find us on Twitch. You can also find us on podcasts for podcast aggregators. We have a bi-weekly podcast. We also release things like brewing videos, deck texts, and basically whatever comes up in our minds as we publish them. Uh, we have all kinds of different things out there, and uh, we have a link tree out there for those of you who want to see, and we are also out there on social media. For sure, for sure. So anyway, Ryan, really what I wanted to talk about today on today's episode is something that's very close to your heart. And again, if people have watched any of the Playing With Power videos for long enough, they kind of see the pattern here that you really love a couple of different decks, but one in particular really like sticks for you. And that is your personal build of Goto Bandit Warlord. And so I figured today's episode is going to be all about Goto. We're going to try to talk a little bit about exactly what Goto does, how the CDH version of Goto works, some of the key cards, maybe some of the spicy bits that people don't really notice when they look at this kind of deck list. Uh, Maybe some things about your personal list that are a little bit different from the deck database and maybe why you chose those. And then we're just going to wrap it up and try to basically sell people on why they should play this particular deck, especially if they're new into CDH. Sound good? Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, this is going to be an awesome episode. So anyway, for those who out there who don't know what Goto does, I'm going to read out the card first, and then we're going to get talking into this deck. Anyway, Goto Bandit Warlord is a 3-3 human barbarian. First came out in Champions of Kamigawa, which is extremely topical right now. And uh, costs 5 and a red. And reads, when Goto Bandit Warlord enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an equipment card and put it onto the battlefield. If you do, shuffle your library. And then the second piece of text here, whenever Goto attacks for the first time each turn, untap it and all samurai you control. After this phase, there is an additional combat phase. So again, may not look necessarily like the most assuming commander here, but when you go into the CDH deck database and you go under the Goto Helm uh, section right there, you start to see that this deck is effectively a, a combo sitting in the command zone. And uh, so anyway, Ryan, can you walk us through a little bit about exactly how this deck works and, you know, how it kind of differs from a lot of the other meta decks that you see in CDH right now? 
Sure. So first of all, we'll start off with just basically the very bare bones of what Goto Helm is. So Goto Helm is Goto Bandit War Warlord piloted and combined with Helm of the Host. Helm of the Host is a large legendary artifact equipment. It costs four and it reads at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a token that's a copy of equipped creature, except the token isn't legendary if equipped creature is legendary. That token gains haste and then it has an equip cost of five. So back in 2018, when Dominaria came out, Helm of the Host uh, basically was the key to getting infinite combats with Goto. And the way that it works is that you equip Helm of the Host to Goto, you move to combat, Goto, uh, Helm will trigger, and a non-legendary copy of Goto will enter the battlefield. That creature has haste, and then that pairs with the idea that Goto Bandit Warlord says whenever it attacks for the first time each turn, untap it and all samurai. So you attack with Goto, and then you'll get another combat step. You'll go to the second combat, a Helm of the Host will trigger again, you'll get another hasted copy of Goto that's also non-legendary. And you'll keep doing this over and over and over again, and you get infinite combats and infinite three threes, and essentially you can use that to attack the table and kill them all. What brings Goto Bandit Warlord into the realm of competitive EDH is the idea that Goto Bandit Warlord is a combo piece in the command zone that fetches the other half of its own combo piece. So that's really the key. There were earlier builds of Goto Bandit Warlord out there that used things like Blade of Cells and stuff like that. But 2018's Dominaria, with the printing of Helm and the Host, really kind of catapulted it into more of the forefront of, hey, this is actually a CEDH deck. And the very bare bones of it, other than the combo itself, is what all the Godot players out there and everyone who plays CEDH calls the quintessential count to 11 and win. The reason that it's that is because Godot costs 6 and the equip cost of Helm costs 5. So you count to 11, so 6 cast Goto, fetch up Helm, pay 5 to equip, and win the game. So count to 11 and win the game. It's a very, very simple premise that allows you to win. And the thing about Goto is the way that this particular deck is structured is it allows you to win very, very quickly. We're talking turns 1 through 3 on average. So that's an extremely fast way. Uh, that's an extremely fast win for a deck, and that's what puts it into the CDH realms. And people who play CDH definitely know to fear Goto Bandit Warlord because it can win in the first three turns of the game. So you have to almost plan to make sure you can stop Goto before progressing your own game plan. And this is the kind of impact that Goto has made on the CDH meta. For sure. And I've noticed on your guys' channel especially, there have been more than one uh, times where Goto has basically turn one the table, where you're able to get up to 11 on turn one, and you just one-shot the table before, even some cases, before some players have even taken their first turn. So, yeah, Goto is just, like, in, in a... In a meta that's basically has a lot of turbo decks right now, Goto is like mono red turbo just without the black elements, really. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, now that we've talked a little bit about how Goto works in this context, let's go through some of the rest of the deck here. Obviously, Commander is a 100 card format. And obviously, you know, not you're not always going to be able to hit 11 on turn one. That's going to require a lot of things to go right in your opening hand. So could you walk us through the rest of this deck in particular and just show us how it basically, if you can't get to 11 on turn one, how do you try to be able to stay afloat 
for a couple of turns until you can finally reach that critical mass with Goto. Obviously, there's a few stacks pieces in here, some of the usual red counter spells, etc. Other ways to be able to get mana, a lot of mana rocks. Could you just walk us through the rest of this and also kind of explain why uh, there are some other pieces in here to help you equip Helm of the Host if you can't uh, pay the five mana? Sure. So when you first are introduced to Goto Bandit Warlord as a deck from the outside looking in, like I had said, it's the quintessential count to 11 deck. But a lot of times it's not counting to 11 and winning the game. There's a number of different cards that are in this deck that are labeled as cost reducers. That basically takes that 11 down to a lower number. It's a lot easier to get to 7 or 8 than it is to get to 11. And those are the things that allow you to speed through the deck and speed through the game. So there's a couple of key cards that do this, and it relies on Goto Bandit Warlord plus a couple of other uh, key cards to help us get there. So I'll give an example. So there are cards called Heat Shimmer, there are cards called Twin Flame, and there's also a card called Cursed Mirror. And what these are, these are kind of like clone effects, if you will. They're, they're create a token copy or enter the battlefield as something. Goto has a triggered ability when it enters the battlefield, and that's to fetch up any equipment onto the battlefield. And what you do in aspects to get these costs lowered is to create a copy of Goto after it enters to be able to fetch essentially two equipment. So you'll cast Goto, and then you will fetch up another key card, which is called Hammer of Nazan. It's a four-costing legendary artifact equipment. Whenever it or another equipment enters the battlefield, you can attach it to equipment. Uh, to a target creature you control. So basically what it does is it reduces the uh, equip cost of equipment to effectively zero. It makes it a triggered ability versus an activated one. So you cast Goto, fetch Hammer of Nizan, it will equip, and then you make a copy of something through something like um, through Heat Shimmer, Twin Flame, or Cursed Mirror, that will enter. The, the legend rule will apply and you'll bury one. But what will also happen is that trigger will also trigger. And then with that second trigger, you fetch up Helm of the Host. Now, with Hammer of Nizan on the battlefield, Helm of the Host will automatically trigger and equip. So these allow you to shave little numbers off uh, to make the deck go faster. Um, another one is Magnetic Theft. Basically, pay one red as an instant and equip an equipment. Uh, it's very, it's, it, it makes, it, that's one of the, it is the second cheapest way to win the game so you pay six uh you pay five in a red or six total to cast goto you pay one more red you equip it when you fetch up helm and that's how you win the game the way to win the fastest is with a total of four three in a red and that is done through treasonous ogre so treasonous ogre basically is a three in a red for an ogre shaman it's a two three and it says pay three life add red and what you essentially do is because it costs 11, you cast Treasonous Ogre, which getting to four mana on turn one is not hard. And you cast it, pay a, a total of 33 life to cast Goto and equip the uh, Helm of the Host and win the game. Whenever you see a turn one or two win, a lot of times it is through Treasonous Ogre. And so there are cards that let you fetch Treasonous Ogre as well because it's such a powerful card. If... Goto is the number one most important card in the deck, and Helm of the Host is number two. I would venture to say that Treasonous Ogre is number three, with Hammer of Nizan coming in a close fourth. Treasonous Ogre is so is what enables so many of those explosive wins. It's definitely not the only thing that allows that to happen, but it is one of the main instigators for it. 
And so people do plan on a treasonous ogre hitting the battlefield. Whenever you see a go-to player casting Gamble and searching up a card, they're usually searching for a treasonous ogre. Whenever they cast an Imperial Recruiter, when that trigger resolves to fetch a creature with power two or less, it's usually to find a treasonous ogre. So this is such an important card, and it, it enables such fast wins. So that's the first kind of part of the deck, you know, cost reducers that lower that cost of 11 downward. And, you know, we could go over every single little card that does it, but that's the basically the main thing. There are support cards that allow you to get certain things, and these are your typical things like Dockside Extortionist to ramp out, Goblin Welder to do things from your graveyard and back again, um, and a lot of things along those lines that are kind of support pieces. And the other ones are mostly just the quintessential ramp that you see in so many different decks. And it runs all different kinds of ramp. Uh, it runs your your Grim Monoliths, your Lion's Eye Diamonds, your, your Thran Dynamos, your Soul Rings, your Mana Crypts, every piece of fast mana that you can possibly run, this deck wants to run it because it wants to power up to 11 as soon as possible. And that's, you know, kind of the strategy, if you will. The other stuff that's part of the deck is your classic disruption and interaction type things. Your braids, your chaos warps, your deflecting swats. Um, you have lightning bolts. You have some uh, free uh, interaction in the form of things like thunderclap, uh, pyrokinesis, uh, other things like tip trickery. This is your classic, like, interaction type stuff. And then there's a bunch of other supplemental things as well, like uh, other uh, ritual spells like Jessica's Will, uh, Desperate Ritual. Uh, Final Fortune's an interesting one because you cast Final Fortune. It basically also allows you to reduce the cost. Tap out, cast Goto, cast Final Fortune, untap in your extra turn, equip, Goto, uh, equip Helm to Goto and win. And then finally, there's some things that are labeled under the stacks uh, kind of category. And those are things like your Chalice of Voids, your Trinospheres, your Blood Moons. These are the things that help try to slow down or disrupt other players that are trying to look to outpace you and outrace you. Uh, you know, these are your Turbo decks, your Ad Nauseum decks, your Greedy Mana bases that might disrupt you in the terms of like four color control a blood moon really hurts uh decks like that and and uh other cards like conqueror's flail these are all the types of things that kind of disrupt your opponent so you can try and power out and get the win yeah it's really a simple deck when you get down to it because it has a singular focus you have a few ways to be able to get around the the fact that the, that single this the, excuse me it, you get a, there are several ways to be able to get around the fact that EDH is a singleton format. So you have those redundant effects. And then you have, obviously, the interaction that's very important, as well as the stacks pieces that you're going to need to try to make sure people aren't going to mess too much with your wins. So, yeah, this seems like a very simple deck when you really dig into it to really be able to pick up, especially if you're new. And I think that's really why um, Goto is one of the best, in, in a way, commanders for a cdh newbie especially like myself here is that it is so simple the line is so simple you just basically find helm of the host you effectively win off of that and yeah it's it's just really cool to see this sort of interaction that you basically only need that one card but again now that we're talking about that and i think ryan you know exactly where i'm going here um the listeners out there are probably wondering well what happens if helm is removed and how can you try to be able to grind out value if your two-card combo is gone? 
basically, could you walk us through how this deck tries to deal with that if Helm is removed from the game? And does it basically shut this deck off, or does it still have some ways to be able to try to figure something else out so you don't just lose on the spot? Yeah, so really great question. This is a one-trick pony deck. This is, you know, this is a uh, deck that looks to cast card A, fetch up uh, card B, win the game with the A plus B combo. That is what this deck does, and it is highly optimized to do it. And it's very, very important to note that this deck doesn't have plans C, D, E, and F. It, it doesn't have those. That's not what it's trying to do. Because what it does is it ends up diluting itself too much, trying to figure out how to work its way into those plans B, C, and so on. So what it does is it, it doubles down and quadruples down into this plan A. Now, that is absolutely an inevitable thing that will happen as you pilot Goto Bandit Warlord. Hey, I'm going to move to combat. Nature's claim, kill your helm. Oh, okay. Well, that's a bummer. You know, it, but the thing is, is that you're not out of the game. You know, we've been piloting this deck a long enough time to learn how to deal with those types of things. So one of the quintessential things about Goto Bandit Warlord is that it never ramps into nothing. So if you ever draw a piece of ramp off the top of your deck, you never like shrug or sigh that you didn't get what you wanted because every single piece of ramp that you get allows you to ramp into Goto. And that's really important because when you're talking about people who are inevitably remove something, a lot of times that permanent based interaction is some type of removal that, you know, is creature based if it's direct damage. Other things that are a little bit more limited depending upon the colors. And so they might have to do something like hit Helm. If you hit Godo, and if you, if depending on how you time it or how you do it, it might disrupt Godo for a turn or two, but it doesn't ramp at anything. So if you disrupt me if after I've ramped to 11, I can just ramp to 13 instead and ramp to 15 instead. And so it can just keep doing this. So if you counter my Godo Bandit Warlord, I'll just cast it again you know, and try to win at that point. However, what if somebody does something to Helm of the Host? Well, there are already cards built into the deck that allows us to deal with these situations. Um, we have Goblin Engineer. I'm sorry, I'm not Goblin Engineer, Goblin Welder. Goblin Welder is a perfect way to win that game. So let's say that I cast Goto Bandit Warlord, I fetch up Helm of the Host, I quip Helm. I move to combat, and before, the, before I'm in combat, you cast Nature's Claim, you destroy my Helm. I can go either fetch Goblin Welder, if I, or if I have Goblin Welder, I can simply either kill and recast Goto or fetch up something to either do a Goblin Welder synergy. Let's, let's say I cast a Lotus Petal, I'll Goblin Welder, Lotus Petal into the graveyard, and uh, Helm of the Host back onto the battlefield, and then just pay five and equip and then try to do it again. Or something like if you destroyed my helm and I was able to kill my Goto, I'll recast Goto, fetch Hammer of Nizan, and then use a Goblin Welder Synergy then to find and get Helm onto the battlefield, then it'll auto-equip. So if you're destroying Helm, there are ways that this deck can kind of be resilient through that. It can work through that disruption. Uh, another question that we usually get is, uh, be like, oh, well, what about... Uh, well, what it's one thing to destroy it, but what if I exile it? Oh, well, if it's exiled, then you're in real trouble. What do you, you've just lost the game. Well, no, not really. So we have Karn the Great Creator, the Planeswalker, in here. 
Not only does it double as a null rod effect for your opponents, which is really, really brutal to turbo ad nauseum strategies, but you can also use its minus two abilities ability, which states you may choose an artifact card you own from outside the game or in exile, reveal that card and put it into your hand. So if oh. you exile my helm of the host, I can go get it with Karn the Creator. <laughs> that that's amazing, honestly. I I didn't even read the minus two ability on Karn. That is that is slick right there. Yeah. So most people just think Karn is a Mox Diamond killer <laughs> and a Null Rod effect, but actually what it does is it allows us to also get our Helm back from Exile in case you had that extra maneuver that actually takes it out of the graveyard and just exiles it all together. Nice. So we have ways around that. Nice. I, I really like that synergy right there, is even if you do manage to exile it, we still have a way. Again, if you counter Karn, you're screwed, but... That's kind of the way it is with the glass cannon decks and CDHs. Occasionally, you're going to be stuck sitting there without anything to do. But the good news there is the game will probably be over soon. So hopefully you won't have to worry about too long, right? Yeah, and, and really, the deck is built for speed. So you're not trying to go to five, six, turn seven, eight. You know, you're not trying to get to the point where they're so stabilized they can do that. And there's not a whole lot of spells out there in those really low numbers that can actually exile an artifact. We're talking about some real silver bullets at that point. So usually the things that you have resources for in those first three turns of the game are usually like one mana value or two mana value spells. So you're talking about your nature's claims and stuff like that. And those are only destroying Helm. Those aren't actually exiling Helm. So you actually have to... The CDH is a little bit more narrow in its scope because you don't always want to spend so many resources to put it into that extra piece of exile when, in fact, you can either just try and win over top of them or disrupt them once and it takes them a long time to rebuild. So we, you know, CDH focuses on this hyper-efficiency, and as such, it allows us to be a little bit more resilient when we get disrupted. For sure. I mean, again, we were talking before the show here about how it'd be very difficult and a very different conversation to talk about how to play Goto in a more casual environment. Because, again, you may not be running Helm or the host specifically. You could do a lot of other things. I mean, in, in my opinion, Goto could be used in a lot of casual builds where you're not going to be running Helm, or you're going to be running a lot of the more casual types of equipment. Your um, Blackblade Reforged, your Sword of this and that, things like that. But yeah. In the CDH version here, you have the optimized line. You know exactly what you're going for. You have the backup plans to make sure you're able to get that. And in case uh, your those important pieces are taken out, you can either recast Godo. You can bring it back from the game. You can bring Helm back from the graveyard, back from exile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You just have the means to be able to do that. It's it's just it's a completely different mindset on here, and it's really exciting to just be able to talk about this. So now that we've discussed this particular list in in detail ryan you have your own personal list i kind of want to hear is from you is your list pretty much the exact same that is found on the deck database or do you have some other spicy tech that you decide to run that's a little bit different so yeah um all goto players and i think all people who kind of adopt a cdh deck in the beginning will absolutely run the primer version and they will do this for x amount of games for however long it is and then as they get more and more into the cdh format they will realize that you know oh my meta is kind of leaning towards this or leaning towards that and so they'll start to make swaps here and there and uh, i'm no different from that and i have been playing playing goto helm long enough 
to know, number one, what I like my play style to be, as well as what I can best battle in my local metas. And my local meta is the playing with power meta, you know, our, our, you know, all of our friends and stuff like that, as well as the just the online meta in our Patreon Discord. We have leagues that we do, and we, we play in those leagues, and, and we play with our friends and play with our patrons. And, you know, as you play more and more and more, you start to see which ones were more of a you know, blind meta decision versus a focused meta decision when you're talking about primer lists. The CDH decklist database is a fantastic resource for players that are getting into the CDH format or even established players that want to get a general idea of what to expect at certain tables. When you get beyond a certain point, the, the decklist database kind of gets into a diminishing returns capacity because all of these decks are meant to be played in, you know, kind of meant to be viewed as a, in a blind meta, you know, start playing with this, but you're going to start to make certain swaps and trades as you go on, as you, you know, cater to more of your local meta. And a lot of decks in the decklist database are built that way. You'll actually see them with considering boards and sideboards that say, look, you know, swap these out according to whatever meta you're in. Uh, and I'm no different. So our meta, you know, it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows. It swings, you know, to mid-range, and then it swings towards turbo, and swings towards mid-range, and, and back and forth, and back and forth. And what I had found that a lot of times, you know, I was running the primer list, and the primer list would make certain cuts because certain cards would kind of slowly edge them out over time. And... As the primer kept evolving, once again, for a blind meta, there were certain cuts that it had to make because other pieces or supporting pieces kept getting a little less relevant with each iteration, with each change. And it got to the point where it was like, okay, well, unless you are actually in XYZ meta, you just aren't going to run this card. And I know what meta I'm in. So I made my own version of Godot that leans in heavily to attacking my meta more than just a blind meta. And what I mean by that is, you know, right now our our ebb and flow is a turbo meta. So we have a whole lot of super greedy uh, decks that are super proactive, meaning that they want to try and be the ones that win first. Not a whole lot of heavy control, or if it's control, it's not really uh, control that can stabilize within the first three turns. And then our turbo decks are trying to outpace them because of it. And so I steered Godot in that direction. So let me be clear that Godot, my build of Godot Bandit Warlord is still Godot Helm. It's not different. It's not some crazy out there, out in left field, completely different build of Godot Bandit Warlord. It's still the Godot Helm combo at its core. I just made certain choices that catered more toward my specific meta than maybe someone who goes into a blind meta. Definitely. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, things that a lot of new people to CDH like myself have really kind of struggled to understand sometimes is CDH is not necessarily a monolith. It doesn't, it can be, uh, you know, based on what the database is showing, but it's in practice, it really isn't. People are still going, this is still CDH and this is still EDH. You're going to be changing some things, tinkering with things as you go along. You're going to find that some things work great, some things don't work great. And, I mean, that's just the nature of the format right here. And it's just good to know that they're even at this side of the format where things are so optimized, you can still find ways to make a few little changes off the stock list. That's, that's really cool to know. 
Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I absolutely love about that is the fact that what a lot of what attracts EDH players to EDH is their expressions to, you know, to uh, their ability to express themselves through their deck building, through their play style, through all those different things. And a lot of people actually shy away from CEDH because they're like, well, it's all homogenized and it's all the deckless database and you don't ever play anything else. And that's not why I got into this multiplayer format. The good news is, is that that actually is still very relevant inside of CEDH. Um, I say, you know, I have certain things that lean into my meta, but there's also certain things that I just use as personal choices because it fits my play style and how I do things. So, for example, the primer of Godo Bandit Warlord runs Wheel of Fortune and Wheel of Misfortune. I personally hate Wheel of Misfortune. <laughs> I just I hate that card. I, it's a junk card, and I will fight anyone on Twitter who says otherwise. It is a junk card. Is that a promise? Yeah, it's a promise. So at okay. me on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, at me on Twitter, at Cal, at PlayingWithPowerMTG.com, and he can field all calls to me. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure Cal will love that. Yeah, I'm sure he will. But essentially, I hate playing that card. I, I don't like it. It never works out. Every time I ever try and get it, I get disrupted or somebody knows I'm trying to do something and so they have maybe the life or the resource to pay or something didn't work out quite as you wanted and it just doesn't work. So I didn't run it. I I swapped it for Faithless Looting instead. Faithless Looting is a one CMC sorcery that allows me to filter through my deck a little bit more. And is Wheel of Misfortune better than Faithless Looting and there's arguments all day long for that? That's okay. You can run your cards that you want to run so long as you're still adhering to your strategy and you can still lean into those appropriately. Does that to say that the primer deck list, the, the primer Godo made a big mistake with Wheel of Misfortune and they're they're dumb and I'm the only one who's no, of course not. Wheel of Misfortune is a fine card to run. I just don't personally run it because my experience with this deck has never really paid off when I tried to use it. And I've made a lot of those different changes according to what I've done. So, for example, um, Goto, the old version, used to run Krark Clan Ironworks, the one where you it costs four and you sack an artifact and add two colorless. And it eventually got away from that. It just, you know, it wasn't enough that really supported it. And it was, it was you know, lowering and lowering its effectiveness and support every iteration. And it eventually it ended up dropping it. I still stick with the Krark Clan plan. Because I find that I can still get myself to win through Kark Clan a lot more in my particular meta. Is that to say that Kark Clan will work in every single meta? No, but it does work in my meta. And there's other things that I also do to my personal deck that uh, were never on the primer. So, for example, I run the Underworld Breach card. Everyone knows what Breach that's in CEDH. And is that because I do some sort of breach shenanigans with empty libraries and stuff like that? No, it's not. It's actually a utility card that allows me for additional options if necessary. So it, with the choices that I make in the deck, Underworld Breach allows me to do things like add extra value from a Kirk clan play. You know, I, you know, sack something for zero, add two colorless, escape three, uh, you know, and cast the zero colorless artifact again and add another two red, uh, add another two colorless. And it enables synergies like that. I also run LED and Wheel of Fortune in here as just cards to begin with. Not because of Underworld Breach, they're just in here already. 
So I can enable certain shenanigans with that with things like uh, uh, Dire Fleet Daredevil. Dire Fleet Daredevil is a 2-1 for 2. Uh, it's a pirate, has first strike, and it says, when it enters the battlefield, exile, target instant or sorcery card from an opponent's graveyard. You may cast it this turn. You may spend mana, though, or many mana of any type. It would be put into a graveyard this turn, exile instead. So uh, Dire Fleet Daredevil is primarily in there for things like uh, additional support during your uh, helm turn. Like, a lot of times you'll cast Dire Fleet Daredevil, exile Pact of Negation. So if anybody tries to counter your Godo, you know, you just pact and negation them mm -hmm. through that card. So that's some of the things that Dire Fleet Daredevil does. But Dire Fleet Daredevil can actually do a whole lot more things than that. And so I put Underworld Breach in there to allow these types of synergies to take place. And at the very, very worst, Underworld Breach is a mid to late game regrowth. One at a red, get something out of your graveyard. Oh, for sure. So, Especially since you're going to have stuff in your graveyard that you've already thrown away earlier that you can use for the escape cost. Exactly. So if I cast Magnetic Theft, it got disrupted. My Magnetic Theft is in the graveyard, My, you know, and I can recast Goto or something like that. I can cast Underworld Breach and escape Magnetic Theft from my graveyard and try to do it again. And depending on what I have in my graveyard, if it gets countered, I can do it again so long as I have the cards to escape. Mm -hmm. The Underworld Breach, a lot of times people get the tunnel vision and they say, well, only for a combo is what you can use it for. But Underworld Breach actually has a lot more versatility than that. And that's just what I happen to run in my particular version. You know, I actually really like that interaction right there, because when I was looking at Underworld Breach for more of a casual setting, personally, because that's usually what I do, right? I I just really like the ability that, you know, you could get one, two, maybe three cards out of your graveyard just for the value. You're, you don't necessarily have to utilize it for the combo potential. So I like hearing that you're kind of in the same boat, that you don't necessarily have to try to go to the nth degree with that card. It's still just... It's just a very good card, no matter what you need to use it for. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that a lot of times when we really start to get to the optimization levels that we do in CDH, it tends to start to get the blinders on. So whenever I show anybody my deck list and they see Underworld Breach in there, they're like, oh, is there another combo that I didn't see? And they only see it as a combo piece, when in fact Underworld Breach actually has the versatility to do much more than just be a combo piece. And you have to, and that's one of the things I like. And that's part of my play style. I like those types of things. And so that's why I include it in my particular build. Definitely, definitely. So I think the last question here, Ryan, before we finish our chat here today, is you basically selling the listeners and myself on why they or I should play Goto Bandit Warlord if they're interested in getting to CDH. Obviously, I did an episode a week or two ago uh, with Clark the Thumbless when I had Ken from Stack EDH and Scoop Phase on there to talk about how flexible Clark is. And I figured that since we're talking about Goto today, why don't you try to sell us on this deck list and why we should give this deck a try? All right. This is the moment I was born for. Okay. Let me get ready. <laughs> so, all right. If you're looking to get into CEDH, I argue that this is probably the easiest one to do it with. If I tell you, cast Godo, fetch Helm, equip Helm, win the game, and that's the only instruction I have to tell you in order to get into CEDH, that's a pretty low barrier to entry. Godo is super simple on its surface level. Count to 11, win the game. 
I don't have to go through complicated lines and what you should fetch with your fetch land and what should your opening hand look like on turns one, two, and three with your colors. And well, when you're resolving an ad nauseum, you need to make sure you're fetching this and this, and you need to pay attention to your life total for that and that. And you have to go through all of these lines and these layers. And oh, don't forget about learning about your meta and learning about what your opponents are playing and all these other, no. Cast Godo, equip Helm, win the game. There's not <laughs> much of a lower barrier to entry than those three lines. And one of the things that I love and found out that I loved about Godo was that Godo grows with you. I tell you those three lines, you sit down at a table, you play for a couple hours, you will inevitably win one of those games and it'll make you feel great. But then you're saying, well, it's a one trick pony and I'll get bored of it and then I'll need to move on something else and that's what I'm not really interested in. Godo grows with you. This wasn't just cram every artifact in here and see if we can get to 11. That's not how this deck was built. There's actually a lot of subtle nuance to this deck that you do not see at first glance. Like I mentioned with the Underworld Breach in my build, but in other things that you might not notice in the beginning. Oh, Bergy God of Storytelling. Oh yeah, cast it out of red. You go mana positive on certain things. Yeah, big deal. There's a flip side to that card, card Harnfell, Horn of Bounty, where you say, I'll discard my hand and grab 14 cards and see if I can win. There's a nuance there that you don't see at surface level. Karn the Great Creator, most people only see it as, like I said, the Mana Crypt Killer and the Null Rod effect, but you can get an Exiled Helm with it. There are so many things that you can grow and, and avenues that you can build on with this deck that you feel that as you grow as a player that you're discovering nuances about that deck that it is also following you in that journey and that's when you start to do things like oh i think i'm you know i think i'm going to add this card or i think i'm going to take out that card or wow you know the mid-range metas are really killing me maybe i'll add some stacks to counteract that and it grows with you I add an expedition map package to my particular build because I know that there's a lot of really high value lands that allow me to get out of a lot of different odd situations. And that was something that in the beginning, when you look at the primer, you say, well, what exactly is this land for or that land for? I'm not really seeing what the value is here. But as you grow as a player, it follows you on that journey. And that's one of the things that I stress so much about Godo Helm is you take it with you on your journey in the beginning and it will you'll see the nuances of CDH really start to unfold in front of your eyes you'll see a interaction coming from an opposing board state where you're like hey this card that's in my hand that I didn't really see as a major value suddenly became super relevant right now and that would be something like Direfleet Daredevil, like I mentioned earlier, or something like Ricochet Trap, really getting that gotcha on that certain player. And these are the types of things that you can work with that grow with you as a player. So Goto is so great to start off with because it's so easy to understand, but its nuances help you grow in the CDH, in your CDH journey. Wow, that is really well said. And you really have me uh, wanting to proxy up, print out Godo now. You know, just go down and get the get the sheets printed out, cut them out, and just play. Because this, I've learned honestly so much about this deck list just in the last uh, 35 minutes. It's, it's amazing. 
Well, my work here is done then. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear it. All right, Ryan. I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been awesome having you. It's been awesome hearing more about Goto. And like I just said, I really want to take Goto out for a spin and just see what happens. Awesome. Uh, let us know whenever you want to play. We'll be glad to play with you. All right, definitely. I will do that. Uh, but again, before uh, you head off here, could you tell the fine people out there listening exactly where they can find you and playing with power again? Yep. So you can find us primarily on YouTube. Just go to the search bar and type in playing with power MTG. You can also find us on all of your favorite podcast aggregators. You can also find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Just look for playing with power MTG and you're bound to stumble onto us. For sure. Anything uh, really cool coming up soon that you just want to shout out right now? Yeah, so we have a uh, a webcam proxy-friendly CEDH tournament going on in our Patreon Discord. So February 26th, uh, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern, we're going to be hosting a tournament. We're going to have over $1,200 in cash prizes for the top four. So $500 to first place and $250 for second through fourth. Uh, it is going on, like I said, this February 26th. And... Uh, all you have to do to sign up is be a patron and have access to the Discord. So for a minimum of $3, because any tier qualifies, you can sign up to our Discord and join our tournament. We're also going to be at uh, SCG Con Indianapolis in March, as well as the Marchesa 2022 tournament coming up as well. So we look forward to seeing everyone out there and recording games and playing in the tournament. Sounds good. Sounds good. And for people who are interested, the 26th is a Saturday. So that should work for their schedule. If you're interested in checking that out, definitely do so. And if you're interested in hearing my episode on Kark the Thumbless or just any of the episodes I've done on the MTG and Quarantine podcast, you can find those on the usual podcast outlets. That's your Googles, your Apples, your Spotify's, CastBox, RocketCast, MTG Cast. There's so many of them I always forget the name, but if it's a major podcast outlet, odds are I'm on there. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at MTG in quarantine. If you find the happy looking Ulamog wearing a pair of headphones, you've found the right place. Also, if your podcast outlet has a rating feature, I would appreciate it if you could give me a honest feedback of how I'm doing. I always want to make sure I'm doing the best I can on the show. So if you could leave me feedback on your podcast outlet of choice, that would be amazing. And thank you so much in advance. And I want to utilize this opportunity again to give a huge shout-out and thank you to all the awesome people who have supported me over at patreon.com slash quarantine. So another huge shout-out to Mr. Big Benz, Anomaly, Draco Lucian, Neo Royal, Nick S., Infamous Fridge, Frugal Brutal, and Jenna the Filthy MTG Casuals for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash mtgandquarantine for more information. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the MTG and Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.